The Old Testament reading for today will come from Isaiah chapter 9. We will read verses 2 through 7. The New Testament reading will be 2 Corinthians 8-9. The title of this sermon is, Why the Incarnation? Why the Incarnation? Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 2 Corinthians 8-9 Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. This morning I wish to address the question, why the Incarnation? The word Incarnation comes from a Latin word meaning to make flesh. And so when we speak of the Incarnation, we are speaking of this marvelous and mysterious truth that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who took on flesh. More precisely, we confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the second person of the triune God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and that in time, the Son of God took to Himself a human nature. And so He was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. You know, in our culture, it is traditional to remember the birth of Jesus Christ on this day, December the 25th. Sadly, many celebrate this day while completely forgetting that it is about Jesus. And from among those who do remember that this day is about Jesus, I would guess that few have contemplated the mystery of the Incarnation. It's possible to talk about Jesus and even to believe in Jesus, but to only think very superficially about His person and His work. Brothers and sisters, we must contemplate the mystery of the Incarnation. This doctrine is mysterious. And by that I mean it is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. How can it be 
that the eternal Son of God, who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, took to himself human nature. He took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. How can it be that these two natures are united in one person forever without any alteration being made to either the human nature or the divine? When I say that this doctrine is mysterious, I do not mean to say that it is not clearly taught in Scripture, for it is. Instead, I mean that it is difficult for our minds to fully comprehend. This morning, we will be contemplating the Incarnation together. I'm reminded of what is said about Mary, the mother of our Lord, in Luke 2.19, after she had experienced all that she did leading up to the birth of Jesus, and after the birth itself, we are told that she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Brothers and sisters, we ought to do the same thing with the doctrine of the Incarnation. We ought to treasure this doctrine, and we ought to ponder it often and deeply, for in this way, the Lord has redeemed us and reconciled us to the Father through the incarnation of the Son. I suppose we may approach the doctrine of the incarnation in four different ways. One, we could speak of the fact of the incarnation. And if we were to take this approach, we would go to those scripture texts in the Old Testament and the New, which clearly state that Jesus the Messiah would be human and that he would be God, fully God and fully man. That the Messiah would be the God-man is taught in the Old Testament. Those who believed the scriptures prior to the birth of Christ knew that the Messiah would be human. He would be the son of Adam and Eve. He would be the son of Abraham. He would be the son of David. He would be the great prophet, priest, and king of God's people. So that the Messiah would be human was clear to all, but there were also indicators that he would be more than a mere man. He would also be divine. Consider, for example, Isaiah 9, 6-7, which we read just a moment ago. It speaks of the Messiah in this way, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David, and over his kingdom, to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You heard some of the names of the Messiah there mentioned, uh, particularly astonishing, are these titles, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And so the Old Testament does indicate that though the Messiah will be man, he will be more than a man, a mere man. He will be God with us. In fact, I Isaiah 7.14 says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, and we know that that name means God with us. Other passages could be mentioned too. I mentioned these as examples so that you might see that the doctrine of the incarnation is not a New Testament doctrine only. No, the Old Testament hinted at it. Not all within Old Covenant Israel saw this doctrine, I will admit. Not all believed it, but some did. 
Some were expecting this Messiah when he was born into the world. And the Gospels do tell us about this. There were some who were expecting this Messiah, the God-man, and they were eager to receive him into the world when he was born. The doctrine of the Incarnation is taught subtly in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it is very explicit. Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of God come in the flesh, John 1, 1 and 14. He was truly human. He was born of Mary. He grew in stature and wisdom. He experienced hunger and thirst. He experienced pain and sorrow. He made the will of the Father His will and always did what was pleasing to Him. But clearly, He was no ordinary man. No, He was and is Emmanuel, God with us. Before Abraham was, he existed. He and the Father are one. These were the claims of Christ. Those who saw him saw the Father. His claims were almost unbelievable, but what did he do? He performed miracles. He calmed the stormy seas. He fed great multitudes with only a few loaves of bread and a few fish. He healed the sick, made the lame to walk, gave sight to the blind, and even raised the dead. These miracles were performed consistently, by him, and they were performed out in the open for all to see. And these were signs or proofs that he was no mere man, but the Messiah of Israel, the God man. Even his adversaries could not deny these miracles. They understood that he claimed to be God's eternal Son. They understood that he made himself to be equal with God, and being pressed to choose which side they would take, and being so darkened. In the mind and heart they chose to kill, rather than acknowledge Him to be the Holy One of God. So yes, this would be one way to contemplate the Incarnation. We could consider the fact of the Incarnation from the Scriptures. Two, we could consider the Incarnation by asking the question, how? How did the Eternal Son of God become incarnate? And if we were to take this approach, I suppose we would need to fix our attention on the story of the virgin birth. As I have said, the Old Testament hints at this. In fact, Isaiah 7.14 is quite clear when it says, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. But Matthew, and especially Luke, tell the story of the virgin birth in their Gospels. In Luke, we find the words that were spoken uh, to Mary by the angel after she asked the question, How? Mary herself wanted to know the answer to this question, How? How would she conceive this child, given that she had never known a man? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then the angel announced to Mary, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That is Luke 1, 35-38. So how did the Son of God become incarnate? Uh, The Scriptures tell us it was through the womb of the blessed Virgin Mary, by the working of God's Holy Spirit. Christ was conceived... Not in the ordinary manner, 
but in a most extraordinary way. The human body of Jesus and the human soul with the mind, will, and affections were brought into existence by the power of the Most High. And at the moment of this immaculate conception, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune God, did assume or take to Himself humanity. As I have said before, there is a great mystery here. But this is the answer to the question, how? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her, yet without sin. That is Baptist Catechism question and answer 25. Three, we could contemplate the Incarnation in a theological way. And by theological I mean that we could carefully consider all that the Scriptures have to say about the person of Jesus Christ, and then ask, how should we talk about this mystery? What must we say, and what must we not say, in order to be true to the teachings of Holy Scripture. I think there is great value in thinking about the Incarnation in this theological way. What do the Scriptures say in their entirety, from the Old Testament, from the beginning of it, to the end of the New Testament? What do they say regarding Jesus the Christ? Who is He? What has He done? How must we think about Him? How must we speak about Him to be true to the Scriptures? You know, some may object to this theological method. Some may say, we don't need to do theology. We don't need to come up with ways to talk about God and Christ. The only thing we need is Scripture. This is Biblicism, and it must be avoided and countered. And really, it is not difficult to counter. If you ever converse with a Biblicist, one who objects to theology and says, the only thing we need is Scripture... Simply ask them to tell you what they believe about God and Christ. Ask them, who is God? Or better yet, what is He? Ask them, who is Christ? Or better yet, what is He? And see how far they make it by simply quoting Scripture texts to you. See how long they can go in the conversation avoiding theological terms like Trinity, nature, and person. They won't make it very far. Uh, the Scriptures aren't written in this theological way, but we are to do theology. We are to take the Scriptures in their entirety and ask, what are we to think about these, these marvelous truths? What are we to think about God and Christ? How are we to think? How are we to speak? And how are we not to speak? And we must labor with the Scriptures and seek to be faithful to them in our thoughts and with our words. We must contemplate Scripture in a theological way, brothers and sisters, and by this I mean we must so deeply value God's Word that we study it in its entirety and with great care. We must bring together all of its truths and seek to understand what it teaches. Over time, this will naturally, naturally result in the formulation of dogma. That's not a very popular word these days, is it? Dogma. It's funny how, how dogma has become a bad word in our postmodern age. You will even hear professing Christians speak against dogma. We should not be dogmatic. Even professing Christians will say this. And my response would be, really? What should we do then? Should we, should we spend our entire lives reading and studying Scripture 
but never come to firm conclusions about what Scripture teaches. Is that what we should do? I say no. This anti-dogmatic spirit that pervades our culture and even the church today is truly silly and really sad. I will admit there is a bad kind of dogma. There is a bad kind of dogma that must be avoided. Dogma is very bad when it does not agree with Holy Scripture. It is also bad when things that are not clearly taught in Scripture, either directly or by way of necessary consequence, are dogmatically asserted. We have to beware of this. If things are not clearly taught in Scripture, then we should not be dogmatic about these things. There there, there should be this category of opinion. I think that is right. So there is a bad kind of dogma. When dogma does not agree with the teaching of Scripture, it is very bad. We should not be dogmatic where the Scriptures are not themselves clear and dogmatic. And of course, we must avoid the arrogant attitude that can so easily infect the dogmatician. But with these cautions in mind, we must confess that dogma is good, for it is the end result of our theological consideration of Scripture. We should study the Scriptures carefully, in their entirety. We should ask, what should we think and how should we speak about things like God and the Christ that He has sent? And the end result of this process should be that we come to firm conclusions, that we make even authoritative declarations, not from ourselves, but drawn out of the Holy Scriptures. So then, what should we dogmatically assert concerning the person of Christ after we carefully study all that the Scriptures have to say about Him? We would do well to say what the Christians who have gone before us have said. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and suffered, and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. This is a citation from the Nicene Creed, Creed of A.D. 381. It is a wonderful dogmatic statement concerning who Christ is, and we would be foolish to ignore what those who have gone before us have said. As you can see, there are many ways to contemplate the Incarnation. We can consider the fact of the Incarnation. We can ask the question, how did the Son of God become incarnate? And we can also consider the Incarnation in a theological way, leading us to doctrinal formulations like the one that I just read. For we can also ask the question, why did the eternal Son of God become incarnate? Brothers and sisters, this is a very important question to ask. Why the Incarnation? In my opinion, if we have the answer to this question, then the fact of the Incarnation will not seem so strange to us. 
You know, on Thursday night, our family went to see a play with Lindsay's side of the family. It was a very nice little play about the very thing that we are considering now, the Incarnation. Mary and Joseph were the central figures. Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist, were secondary. It was effective in highlighting the emotional struggle those two couples would have endured through this experience. Uh, Really, it was the story of the birth of Christ told from the Gospel of Luke. It was a good play, a little hokey at times, in a good way, if you know what I mean. Um, But as I was watching the play, the thought occurred to me, this is such a strange doctrine. This doctrine of the virgin birth and of the incarnation. I'm familiar with the story, as are most of you. And so it does not seem strange to us, but I was thinking about it from the vantage point of a non-Christian, of one unfamiliar with the storyline of Scripture, and putting myself in their place from the vantage point of one who does not believe and who does not know the Scriptures. I thought to myself, uh, they must think this doctrine is is so uh, very strange. Why in the world do these Christians insist that Jesus was and is the God-man? Why could He not simply be a good man to them? Why must they insist that He is the God-man? Do you ever think like this, brothers and sisters, or is it just me? Do you ever try to get into the head of the skeptic to see the world through their eyes? I think there's some value to it. The non-believer must think that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, the virgin birth and the Incarnation, is so very strange. But perhaps one reason for this is that When they are told about the fact of the Incarnation, or the story of how the Son of God became incarnate, or when they consider our theological formulations concerning the deity of Christ, they are left in the dark concerning the reason for it. There is a disconnect, therefore. To them, the Incarnation seems to be an unnecessary and unreasonable myth. They're told about this marvelous and mysterious doctrine, it seems strange to them in part because they do not understand the reason for it. But those who know the Scriptures and those well trained in biblical doctrine will know better. The Incarnation is neither unnecessary nor is it unreasonable. On the contrary, we can clearly see that without the Incarnation, There is no redemption for fallen sinners. Without the Incarnation, there is no redemption for fallen sinners. The Incarnation is in fact most necessary to accomplish and apply salvation to fallen sinners. And it is reasonable too. In order for our salvation to be accomplished, a man had to do it. And yet we know that no mere man could pay for the sins of others and be raised to glory. For one, men are finite. How could the blood of one man atone for the sins of many to make them acceptable before God? And two, all of the sons and daughters born under Adam are born in sin. In other words, all of Adam's descendants are in need of a Savior and cannot themselves be the Savior. This is why Jesus was conceived in this miraculous way. Mary was His mother, But Joseph, the son of Adam, was not his father. Jesus was the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, this work of redemption from sin, the power of Satan and the fear of death, 
And this work of reconciliation to the Father was a work that only the God-man could do. The Scriptures do not only tell us about the fact of the Incarnation, and neither do they merely tell us the story of how the Son of God became incarnate. The Scriptures do also express the reason for the Incarnation. At the beginning of this sermon, I read 2 Corinthians 8-9. It's a wonderful little verse. There Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Clearly, Paul is referring to the act of the Incarnation when he says, Though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. Here Paul is speaking of the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. He is saying something similar to what he says in Philippians 2, 5-7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The eternal Son of God did not hold on to His glory, nor clinch tightly to His riches or rights as God, but set His rights to glory and riches to the side, if you will, by becoming incarnate. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, to finish the quote from Philippians chapter 2, and that is verse 8. Now we must be careful here, When we think of the Son emptying Himself, or when we think of the Son becoming poor for us, we must not think that this produced a change within the eternal Son of God. We must remember that the Scriptures clearly teach that God is unchangeable. You may go to James 1.17 to see a clear assertion of this. God is unchanging. He is unchangeable. So when we speak of the Son of God emptying Himself or becoming poor for us, we must not think that this produced a change within the eternal Son of God. Instead, we must think carefully about these doctrines so that all of Scripture can be held together as true. We must ask ourselves, Well, in what sense did the Son empty Himself? Or, in what sense did He become poor for us? Let me begin by telling you what, in what sense this cannot be true. This becoming cannot be interpreted as having brought about a change in God, for it is impossible for God to change. I can also tell you in what sense this is true, for the Scriptures clearly teach it. I want you to listen again to Philippians 2.5 and following. Have this mind in you, or among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Did you hear it? Paul actually tells us what he means by He emptied Himself. Paul says, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The Son of God emptied Himself, not by laying aside His divinity, 
but by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Stephen Wellam says it well. He says, The incarnation is not an act of subtraction, it is an act of addition. In the incarnation, God the Son acts from the Father and by the Spirit to add to Himself a human nature, so that now and forevermore He subsists in two natures, without loss of attributes in either nature. So, when the eternal Son of God took to Himself a human nature, it did not bring about any change in in God. The very same thing may be said about our 2 Corinthians 8-9 text. In what sense did the Son of God, though He was rich, become poor, not by ceasing to be fully divine, but by taking to Himself a human nature? In other words, the eternal Son of God took to Himself poverty without ceasing to be infinitely and eternally rich. Do you get it? He took to Himself poverty without ceasing to be infinitely and eternally rich. By the way, if the Son of God took to Himself poverty and laid aside the riches that are His eternally so, that would not be good news for us. Then we would have one who is simply poor and unable to elevate us to glory. So, When Paul says that he became poor for us, or he humbled himself, we must ask, in what sense? And it is in this sense, not by laying aside his divinity in any way, not by laying aside any of his divine attributes, which are eternally his. He is unchanging. But in this sense, he humbled himself. He became poor by becoming incarnate, by cloaking himself in a human nature. That is what the Lord has done for us. And here is the point He did this so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Here is the purpose of the Incarnation, clearly asserted. Hear it again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Hebrews 2, 5-18 is also a very important text in answering the question, why the Incarnation? It's a bit too complicated for me to walk through it with you in the limited time that we have remaining. Let me simply read verses 4-18 through of Hebrews 2. I trust that you'll get the point. The writer to the Hebrews says this, "...since therefore the children, that is to say, those Christ has come to redeem, since therefore the children... Share in flesh and blood. This means that because the children, those whom Christ has come to redeem, are human, He Himself, referring to Christ, likewise partook of the same things. That through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that He helps... But He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had, to be made, he had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is a marvelous text here in Hebrews 2, 5-18. through 18. I've only read 14-17 through 17, uh, for you. But you can see the point that the writer to the Hebrews is making. 
Christ's mission was to come and to redeem humanity. He was to redeem those given to Him by the Father. These were humans, not angels, not beasts, but humans. And so He took to Himself a human nature so as to redeem those given to Him by Father from amongst the children of men. We could go on, and I trust that you can see that the Scriptures do provide us with a reason for the Incarnation. Why did the Son of God become incarnate? Why did the Son of God humbly assume a human nature and in so doing become poor? He did it so that by His poverty we might become rich. He came to pay the penalty for human sin, to redeem humans from bondage to sin, and to reconcile humans to the Father. In His humiliation He took to Himself a human nature, so that in His exaltation He might bring many sons and daughters to glory. The passages that I have cited do clearly assert this. There are many others too. But really what is needed is a solid grasp of the overarching story of the Bible. If you know the story that the Bible tells regarding God, His creation and covenant of man's fall into sin when Adam broke the covenant and of God's promise to save through the Messiah, the offspring of Eve, bringing about the consummation of all things in Him, then the purpose of the Incarnation will not seem so mysterious or strange to you. I'd like to begin to move this sermon towards a conclusion now by by exploring the question, why did the Messiah need to be the God-man? Just a little more deeply, I will follow the teaching of a man named Francis Turretin here. I, I found him to be most helpful. In his volume 2 of his Institutes of Elinctic Theology, he states the necessity of Jesus Christ as the God-man, and he does so under three headings. First of all, Christ, the Messiah, had to be the God-man to satisfy the justice of God. God's justice, and here I quote Turretin, required sin to be punished in the same nature in which it had been committed. That's a wonderful statement there. God's justice required sin to be punished in the same nature in which it had been committed. In other words... To pay the penalty for human sin, a human would have to pay it. An angel could not do it, neither could an animal, a beast. And in fact, here is something that God Himself could not do. It might seem strange to speak in this way. There are things that God cannot do. Did you know that? He cannot change. That has already been stated in our, in our uh, text, or in, our, in this sermon uh, this morning. God cannot lie. God cannot sin in any way. And one more thing that God cannot do, God cannot die. God, according to the divine nature, cannot die. And yet, what is the penalty for sin? The wages of sin is death. So God Himself could not pay for human sin. But through the incarnation, that is to say, through the union of the divine nature with the human nature in the person of the Son, we may say that God died for us. We may also speak in this way, as strange as it sounds, we may speak in this way, and in fact the Scriptures do, God shed His blood for His people. You may go to Acts 20, verse 28, to see a statement like that. This was made possible through the Incarnation. 
And why did the Christ need to be God as it pertains to the satisfaction of divine justice? Well, also we may say that the divine nature did also add infinite value to the sufferings of Christ. You may see Turretin in his volume 2, page 303, for more on that. When Christ suffered and died in the place of the elect of God according to His human nature, the divine nature, that is to say the person of the Son, added infinite value to that. So all of the sins of many were paid for in full, thus removing the penalty of eternal damnation and securing for them the gift of everlasting life. Do you get the point? This was no mere man dying in the place of others. This was the God-man who suffered and died for others. Therefore, His sacrifice had infinite value, infinite worth. All of the sins of all of those whom God had given to the Son were paid for in full. It is finished. Eternal damnation was removed and eternal life was therefore given because the Messiah was the God-man who lived and died and rose again for sinners. No mere man could do this. Only the God-man, Christ the Lord, could. Secondly, Christ had to be the God-man to fulfill His office as mediator between God and man. To effectively mediate between God and man, and thus to really and truly reconcile man to God, He had to be both. As prophet, here I quote Turretin, He ought as man to be taken from his brethren that he might become familiar with men and we might approach freely to him. But as God, he ought to send his spirit into our hearts and write the law upon our minds to make us taught of God. I wonder if you can see Turretin's point. Does Jesus fulfill the office of prophet in his work of mediation? Yes, he does. But like no other, for he is the Christ, the God-man. He does not merely proclaim the Word of God like the prophets of old did. No, He is the Word come in the flesh. He sends His Spirit. He writes His law on the hearts of His people. No ordinary prophet could do these things. Only the Christ, the God-man, could. Turretin has something similar to say about the priestly office of Christ. As priest, I quote, He should be... Man, because every high priest is taken from among men, see Hebrews 5.1, as he who sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all one, see Hebrews 2.11. But Christ, the great and eternal high priest, had to be God, I quote Turretin again, to reconcile man to God, satisfy divine justice, abolish sin, and bring in an everlasting righteousness which no mortal could do. Also, he says... The victim to be offered ought not to be angelic, because it could not die, nor a brute, but rational and human, yea, more than human and celestial, who should offer himself through the eternal spirit and add infinite weight and merit to the truth of his sufferings. Lastly, Turretin mentions the kingly office of Christ. As king, he ought to take humanity from us to become united to us, but this was to be united as divinity, by which he should exercise dominion, not over bodies only, but over souls, not for a time, but forever, not over one nation only, but over the whole world. Uh, This is a wonderful section in Turretin as he explains to us why Christ had to be the God-man to fulfill his office as mediator between God and man. Thirdly, Christ had to be the God-man for our sake to redeem us. 
Here I quote Turretin again at length. In respect of us, he should be man that by right of relationship and as brother, he might deliver the captives and slaves of Satan and unite us to himself in the covenant of grace by an eternal and indissoluble bond. And he should be God that by right of ownership and dominion, he might redeem us and claim us for himself. And we have need of like feeling in the one dying and of sympathy in the one living. He should be man to be able to endure all the punishment due to us as of like passions. He should be God to be able as merciful priest to sympathize in our sufferings and to help us when tempted. The evil by which we were pressed was such that none but man could endure it. No one but God could free us from it. And the good which was to be conferred on us, to wit righteousness and life, was such that although man was to receive it, still none but God could put us in possession of it. A beautiful statement concerning the necessity of the incarnation in order to accomplish our redemption. I find Turretin's explanations as to why the Christ had to be the God-man to be very illuminating and even moving. To state the matter very simply though, Christ had to be God because the work that He was sent to do was more than any mere man could possibly achieve. And Christ had to be human, for only a human could possibly redeem humans. A man would need to pay the penalty for sin, namely death. And a man would need to live in obedience to God's law to earn the beatific vision and to enter into glory, not only for himself, but for all he represented. In Christ, the eternal Son of God assumed a human nature in order to redeem humanity. He became poor so that in Him we might be rich. He humbled Himself to the point of death on the cross so that in Him we might be lifted out of our hopelessness and despair and into glory. You know, there is a famous saying uttered long ago by a man named Gregory of Nazianzus. He was at the center of those very important Christological debates that raged in the 4th century A.D. He insisted, rightly, that we must confess that Christ is not only fully God, He is also fully human. And he observed that it is our salvation that is at stake here. As the early church debated about Christological things, how should we talk about Christ? Was He really fully God? Was He fully human? Gregory of Nazianzus, along with others, noted that there's a lot at stake here. Even our salvation in Him is at stake. And here is what he said. What has not been assumed has not been healed. Such a simple statement. What has not been assumed has not been healed. I believe it was Athanasius of Alexandria who said something similar. What has not been assumed has not been redeemed. Both of these statements are true and they are very helpful. They recognize the connection between the human nature of Christ and our salvation in Him. These men made this point. If Christ did not assume a true human nature, a complete human nature, then He did not heal us. He did not redeem us in our humanity. In order to redeem and heal, the human nature had to be assumed or taken to the divine In the person of Christ, brothers and sisters, the eternal Son of God took to Himself a true 
human body to redeem and heal the bodies of all who have faith in Him. It is because the eternal Son of God came in the flesh, died and rose again bodily, that we have this hope that on the last day our bodies will be raised unto glory. What has not been assumed has not been healed. What has not been assumed has not been redeemed. But Christ did assume or take to Himself, the eternal Son of God did, a true human body. And brothers and sisters, the eternal Son of God did also take to Himself a true and reasonable soul. Christ Jesus was and is truly human in body and in soul. This means that He had a human mind. He had a human will. He had human affections. As the God-man, He did perfectly and perpetually honor and love the Lord with all of the faculties of His soul. And for this reason, we know that Christ has the power to redeem and to heal our souls. In Christ, we are a new creation, and we know that He is renewing our minds, our hearts, and our wills to make us more and more able and willing to do that which is pleasing to Him in glory We will be so thoroughly renewed, body and soul, and all of the corruptions that remain within us now will be so completely removed from us that we will freely do only that which is pleasing to God, to the praise of His glorious grace. This is what Christ has accomplished. The eternal Son of God took to Himself a human nature, a true human body, and a true and reasonable human soul, so as to redeem us as whole persons to heal us as whole persons now and for all eternity if we have faith in Him. Brothers and sisters, this doctrine of the virgin birth and the incarnation is mysterious and it might even be considered to be strange by some. I hope that you can see though that it was most necessary for the Messiah to be the God-man in order to accomplish our redemption. My prayer for us is that we would grow in our knowledge of Christ. May the Lord grant us a deeper understanding of who He is, along with a greater understanding of what He has accomplished for us. May God grant us to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we say it so often. We thank you for Christ crucified and risen. And we do mean it, Lord. We thank you for the Messiah who lived for us and who died for us and who rose again for us. I pray that you would add to the faith that we have, this sincere faith that we have, understanding. Give us greater understanding, O God, 
of who Jesus is. May we see Him as the God-man, the eternal Son of God, who took to Himself a human nature, body and soul. And as we comprehend who He is, I pray that our confidence in what He has accomplished for us would grow and grow. God, I pray that You would help us to ponder these things in our hearts, to marvel over them, and may these ponderings produce within us more and more love and a more and more sincere walk before You, O God. We thank You for Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. In His name we pray. Amen.